0: Good morning. Morning. Good morning. We're continuing our study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We are in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1. One thing I like about the Apostles' Creed is that it is linear. It shows history as it actually is with a clear beginning, the creation of the heavens and the earth, a clear climax in the redemptive work of Christ, and a clear conclusion with the return of Christ and the judgment of all creatures. Our passage this morning focuses on the end of history, the final judgment. We are looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll actually begin reading at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember once after a funeral, uh, a woman asking me about the various passages that have been read during the funeral. She was confused. She heard uh, some of the passages refer to uh, the dead person going to heaven and uh, other passages referring to a resurrection of the dead. And she asked me, well, which is it? Do you go to heaven or do you get raised from the dead? It was a very good question. So uh, beginning our study of this passage, I'd just like to review what actually happens to people when they die. Uh, assuming that uh, Jesus has not yet returned uh, when you die, that is a reasonable assumption, given the fact that up to this point, every person in human history has in fact died the return of Christ. Uh, This is what happens. Uh, You die, and immediately you go where? You go before God in judgment, all right? He judges you, and he makes a decision, heaven or hell, okay? If it's heaven, you're received into the presence of the Lord. If it's hell, uh, you are then cast into hell. And you are there in heaven or in hell for how long? Not forever. Heaven's temporary, that's right, until Christ returns. When Christ returns, what we call judgment day, uh, all this stuff happens on that day. Uh, uh, believers and unbelievers alike are raised from the dead. Uh, believers are caught up in the air to meet the Lord. Of course, we turn around and come right back down for the, the great and final judgment of, uh, of all creatures. Uh, God does away with the old heavens and earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth. And what happens to everybody on that day? It's, uh, you get judged all over again, and... The people who were in heaven, what happens to them then? That's right. They live forever in the new, the new earth, in their new bodies with Christ. And the people who were in hell get dumped into a lake of fire. Which, uh, and now the, both the people in the new earth and the people in that lake of fire now have bodies. And so the people who were in hell end up in a place even worse than hell. And the people who were in heaven end up in a place even better than heaven. Uh, Just uh, allow me to make a a few comments on uh, a couple of those things. The moment you die and you get judged by God, I've seen so many movies over the years that show a life after death, okay? And uh, it's not uncommon for there to be some sort of judgment. Obviously, it's not God doing the judging, but some people go to the happy place, and some people go to the not-so-happy place, whatever. Um, but whatever, uh, whatever movie it is, the, the basic division is that which people go to heaven and which people go to the, the not-so-happy place? Yes, that's right. The good people go to heaven, and the, and the bad people go to wherever they go. All right, is, is sort of Hollywood's answer to this. Just to remind you, I, I realize you already know this, but just a reminder that is not how God judges people, because in God's eyes, are, is any person good? No. And God, of course, does not use human standards of good and evil in judging us. It says in um, verse 8 that uh, those who end up uh, on the wrong end of God's judgment are judged thus because they do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me just say also, uh, on the the final judgment, uh, this is a Reformed church. If if you believe that there are like two second comings, well, okay, I love you, and yes, I love you just as much, but we do not believe there are two second comings. We don't believe that Jesus sort of comes and raptures people away, and then there's all this time, and then he comes again. We just sort of believe that all the end time events happen uh, on that same day, on judgment day. All right, so that is, that is what happens to you after you die, assuming Christ hasn't returned yet. Now, you'll recall that uh, I've discussed repeatedly the difference between evangelical and liberal churches. Uh, you'll recall that uh, an evangelical church believes that the Bible is inerrant, meaning without error. A liberal church teaches the opposite, that the Bible is full of mistakes and it cannot be trusted. About half of the Protestant churches in America are liberal, about half evangelical. Now, that is, a, of course, an overly simplistic division of all the Protestant churches in America. In reality, uh, there's a spectrum or a continuum. You've got churches that uh, believe in inerrancy. You've got churches that, wow, okay, <laughs> there's way off the deep end, okay? But uh, in practice, you've got churches in between, and, and there's, a, there's a growing body sort of somewhere in the middle that is called neo-evangelicalism, neo-evangelicalism evangelicalism. And uh, a neo-evangelical church retains many of the outward trappings of an evangelical church. The worship looks like the worship in an evangelical church. They use the same language. Uh, but you start going there, and stuff starts hitting you a little funny. And one of the main differences between an evangelical church like this and a new evangelical one is, of course, their view of the doctrine of hell. View of the doctrine of hell. A liberal church, of course, would teach there's no such thing as hell. Uh, we believe that hell is a place of conscious, everlasting punishment. A new evangelical church... You don't actually have to learn that, by the way. Okay, just you know, There's just sort of this wishy-washy middle group there. Okay, this, this wishy-washy middle group is wishy-washy about the doctrine of hell. Okay, They don't say it doesn't exist, but they're also not really willing to clearly define what hell is. If you look with me, please, at verse 9 in particular. Talking about those whom God does send to hell, it says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever heard of hell defined this way, a separation from God? You don't have to raise your hand okay? Separation from God. The reason I'm not asking you to raise your hand is because uh, I strongly disagree with that definition of hell, and indeed, that definition is kind of a a warning. Bell? Buzzer? I don't know. When I hear that, uh, I start to wonder, okay? Because uh, in a neo-evangelical church, they define hell as separation from God, and then they leave it at that, and they they don't actually define what separation from God is. Uh, means or is, they sort of let the listener decide for themselves what separation from God is. And basically, what they're trying to do is escape the idea that the people in hell suffer conscious, everlasting pain. Okay, they're trying to uh, sort of introduce this idea that maybe, maybe some people just sort of cease to exist. It's called annihilationism. Or maybe they're not in heaven, but they're not necessarily totally unhappy either. They're just in a different place, separate from God. I I strongly disagree with that uh, definition of hell. Uh, Are the people in hell separate from God? They are. But what do we mean by separate? Is God in hell? Yes, God is everywhere. God is everywhere in hell just as much as in heaven. Let me uh, try to explain it this way. Can a husband and wife be separated and still be physically in the same room? Yes. Okay, that is the sort of separation that people in hell are experiencing. They are covenantally separate from God. Can, can a husband and wife be divorced and still be in the same room? Yes. Okay, and again, that's, that's what the people in hell are experiencing. They are divorced from God. Okay, but uh, commonly a divorced couple, who's the last person they actually want to be with? Okay, it's the person they're divorced from, all right? And that is exactly what makes hell so horrible. Why is hell so bad? Because, because God is there. Okay, and it's the last person in the world that the people who are divorced from him want to be around. God is what makes heaven so amazing. God is what makes hell so horrible. As Jonathan Edwards, famous American Reformed theologian, said, God is the flames of hell. God is the flames of hell. All those cartoons, those little demons poking people, you know? Forget it, okay? They're too busy burning, okay? Okay? It's it's God who punishes the people in hell. Now, I realize hell, of course, is uh, a difficult doctrine. Uh, it's not an easy one to discuss. I'm sorry I'm not crying. I, I read this one famous guy once. He said, don't you dare ever preach about hell without crying. All right? And, well, I'm not, so sorry. But it is... It is certainly a very uh, serious doctrine. Uh, Let me ask you this. Which one person in the Bible talks about hell and final punishment far more than anyone else? Jesus, that's right. Let's look at some examples of Jesus' teaching on this. If you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 29. Many years ago, I was hired to be a pastor at a church in Falls Church, and uh, very quickly I discovered these really sappy pictures of Jesus on some of the walls in the Sunday school rooms, you know, the the sort of thing you'd find in a Hallmark store or like in Reader's Digest, you know, the sort of glowing and... He just sort of looks so sweet and wimpy and, and oh, 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 I just can't stand those things. So we had, a, we had a trash the pictures night at youth group. It was great, okay? We, we took those pictures down and we stomped on them. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> because those pictures don't match with what Jesus has to teach about hell. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Skip over, please, to chapter 8, verse 10. Still in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verse 10. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Please turn to chapter 10, verse 28. chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And there's only one person who does that. Who is it? That's God. God is the one who destroys soul and body in hell. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 20 chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. As you know, there are many more passages in which Jesus discusses hell. The point is is that he seems utterly preoccupied with the idea, the idea of final judgment and final destiny. He has a thoroughly eternal perspective, which of course makes sense, since God the Father has entrusted all judgment to him, and he will in fact be making the final call on that day as to where each of us go. My challenge to you is don't be a wimp all right? You know, if if you get up and say, I believe that there is a literal hell, a place of conscious, everlasting punishment, yes, you'll be scorned, you'll be ridiculed, so what? That's what Jesus teaches, that's what the Bible teaches. Don't whip out and just sort of back off and say, well, hell is separation from God, unless you define that very clearly. It's a covenantal separation, not a physical separation. The great mystery of hell is not how God can send people there, but indeed, how he can let anyone into heaven—it is in fact a judgment we all deserve. Turn with me again back to Second Thessalonians chapter one. Second Thessalonians chapter one. The Bible defines justice as getting what you deserve. Justice is getting. What you deserve. Our culture defines justice as getting what you want. Two very different definitions. But although unbelievers often misuse the words justice and fairness, they still retain some understanding of justice. Uh, I go in the bookstore and I find all these comic books, and what are all these heroes trying to do? Uh, trying to do justice, avenge all these wrongs, you know. And I mean, who's buying those things? I mean people who have some innate understanding of the concept of justice. They want to see justice done. They want to see the bad guy get it. Uh, I I had this great friend uh, in high school who'd been to church exactly twice in his life, and uh, if the bad guy did not suffer a really gruesome death at the end of the movie, he walked out. He just stomped out. He's like, I had to make him suffer more, you know. He just, he wasn't happy. In his mind, justice wasn't done enough on this, uh, on this uh, bad guy. It always fascinated me that he understood the concept of justice so well, despite uh, his uh, unchurched background. Do you have an inner sense of justice? Do you have an inner sense of justice? To ask it differently, do you want to see all wrongs righted? Do you look at the world and does it bother you? that there is so much wrong that is currently going unpunished. I hope it does. Turn with me back to Psalm 10, please. In the Old Testament, Psalm 10. The Psalms are full of prayers in which the psalmist is praying for God's justice to be done. psalmist grieved at the fact that justice is not being done. This is just one example of such a prayer. Look with me, please, at Psalm 10. The psalmist prays, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Then in verses 2 through 10, he discusses a wicked man who's going about all of his wickedness, killing, hurting. Verse 11, this wicked man says to himself, God is forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, here this morning as part of being made in the image of God, this desire for justice, this longing to see wrongs righted. Is God righting all those wrongs now? Is he doing anything right now to right wrongs? Anything at all? He's doing some things. If he, if he weren't, the kingdom of God would be a joke. What are some things God does right now in this life to right wrongs? One thing the Bible talks about is is, uh, people reaping what they've sown. If you uh, dig a pit, you fall into the pit you've dug. Uh, That is one way that God partially deals with sin in this life, uh, experiencing the consequences of your sin. Uh, Another way God punishes people, of course, is is through the state. Romans 13 is very clear that the governor is an agent of God's wrath to bring punishment on the evildoer. If the government does its job punishing criminals, they are, to some extent, experiencing the justice of God. Uh, my favorite uh, passage in the Bible on the justice of God in this life is Romans 1. Uh, fascinating passage. I encourage you to go back and look at it at your leisure, uh, talking about how the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of this world. And it goes on to explain how God punishes people in this life by handing them over to their sin. And what's the worst thing God can do to someone in this life? Is it send them to hell? No, there's something worse he can do. He can let you go on sinning. It's even worse. And that is one way that God exercises his justice upon people in this life. Yet, of course, that justice is only partial in this life, and that's the point of our passage today that God will, in fact, one day right all wrongs. So if you would turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 6, very last book of the Bible. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. I find it utterly fascinating that people in heaven pray this prayer. The prayer, how long? If you're familiar with the Psalms, you know how much weight those two words carry. The, uh, a prayer of dissatisfaction, a prayer of wanting something more. The people in heaven pray that prayer. Or are the people in heaven fully happy? No. If they were, they wouldn't pray that prayer. That is a prayer of people who are not as happy as it could be. I'm not denying that the people in heaven are happy. Okay? What I'm saying is that their salvation isn't finished. It's not finished. They pray this prayer. How long, O Lord, till you avenge the blood of your servants? They know that there's something more. There's something more than going to heaven. There's something more than seeing God. These are wonderful things, but it's not enough. It's not enough. The gospel has to include a writing of wrongs, a final correction of the scales of justice so that in eternity everyone can acknowledge the absolute justice of God, that every sin has been punished one way or another, either through the cross of Christ or through the punishment of the wicked in a lake of fire. How long, O oh Lord, until you avenge the blood of your servants? We do not know how long it's going to be, but according to our passage, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, that day will one day come a day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I've had the privilege of Being friends with a great many uh, people who are not yet Christians. And uh, one thing that I've noticed that many of them believe is that uh, God's judgment is somehow unjust or wrong. They do not like God's judgment. They deny his right to judge in the first place. They don't like it that he uses his own standards for judging. They don't like it that God cannot be bribed, no matter how many good works you attempt or religious rituals you perform. They do not like it that God judges us according to what we do rather than according to our intentions. They do not like it that God offers no second chances after you die. They think the punishment is too harsh, and they can't stand the only way out of that judgment that God has provided. Is the judgment of God just? That is actually one of the main purposes of this passage here, that Paul is trying to defend the justice of God in his judgment. If you look with me back at verse 5, it says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, or that God's judgment is just, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just. And if you skip over to uh, verse 11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Twice that word "worthy" appears. Uh, it's very dangerous verses, uh, certainly upon initial reading of them, it makes it sound like you, of course, earn your salvation through your own merit. Uh, the day of my college graduation, uh, our school every year gave this special prize to one student. It, you didn't have to be the valedictorian to get it, it they just wanted to honor some, some student who they felt was just all around the, the best person that year. And uh, I remember us all, it was a small school, 333 of us, okay, but we were all sitting there waiting to see who would get this award. And when they announced the kid's name, and he went up there, I'll never forget what I saw all the students around me doing. They all looked at each other and nodded their heads yes. And smiled, now, you have to understand my school, I mean, type A, cutthroat, you know, everyone's going to law school, and I mean, everyone was just shooting each other in the back all the time, you know. so. To, for, for everyone there to actually sort of look at each other and say, yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I, I'm, I'm glad it went to him. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, this, this person was obviously worthy of this award. Now, here's the key thing. Did he earn that award? No. It was still a gift. Did they have to give it to him? No. All right? So the, the idea of worthy, uh, what you have to understand here, doesn't mean you actually deserve what you're getting, but the idea is that, is that through your life, there's a sense of appropriateness. to to you getting what God is giving you, all right? God wants to so transform you. He wants to so use you that on Judgment Day, when he separates the sheep from the goats and you get to spend eternity with God, that everyone looks at you and nods their head yes. Not that you actually deserve it or merit it, but there's just something appropriate or right about it. Yes, this this person has been so blessed by God, has so wonderfully lived the life or the calling the God appointed for them that, yes, it just, it just feels right. It just feels right for this person to end up over here rather than over here. And that is, that is what Paul is saying here. He's, he's saying that if, if the Holy Spirit does this in you, if he actually makes you worthy of the kingdom of God, if he actually makes you worthy of that calling, on, on the day of judgment, everyone's going to nod yes about you. And the same thing, when uh, unbelievers go to hell, everyone's also going to be nodding, yes, this is appropriate, this is right. There's just going to be this collective agreement that the judgment of God is just or right. And that is why Paul prays in the last two verses of this, chap- of this uh, passage, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's vision for you. Since you know you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, he wants the Holy Spirit to so transform you, to so make you into a person fruitful in every good work, steadfast in love and in faith, that everyone's sense of justice is pleased with you being found in Christ on that day. I have a slide. Would you put it up, please? This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The bodies of men after death return to dust and seek corruption. Corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. That's again what we call the intermediate state, before the return of Christ. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, The scripture acknowledges none. Next slide, please. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give, give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Thank you. You can turn that off. I realize I'm not telling you anything you don't already know this morning, that there is a day of final judgment. We are to live like we believe it, and I pray that we would. Let's pray.